Today, August 7th, 2016, lecture discussion number 249, supposedly. Now, your results may differ, vary. Notice the legal disclaimer as to the date and the lecture numbering. Resolution of our technical difficulties uh, remain elusive. Uh, as a really quick note, I have gotten all kinds of notes and letters this week, most of it on behalf of Dave. And Sharon, I just want to say, Sharon from Texas, I just want to say that I had a, a, about a 12 or 13 minute uh, part of the pregame with regard to the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the geopolitical situation in uh, the Middle East that Dave did not record. And not, it does not intend to include because of, uh, uh who knows why. <laughs> Actually, it's been hilariously funny to read you folks, uh, Sharon and Dr. Peter and Mary and, uh, NJ from PA. Uh, NJ from PA, uh, I wish you would, uh, send us, uh, um, so we can write back to you. We cannot do that, right? Because he's only commenting in sermon audio and we're having no ability to handle that. But Deborah, William and Jeffy from Pittsburgh, uh, all you folks, uh, it's been a delight to have heard from you the last few weeks, especially this ongoing thing about Dave and his, uh, whether or not he's including everything that can be included. More of that to come, I am sure. When we last met, which may or may not have been lecture number 248, we began the investigation into the color blue, the why blue question, or the why are the tassels blue question, or if you prefer, the purple, I'm sorry, the blue, purple, scarlet symbolism. God puts these colors together. Let me help you out a little bit here. Revelation makes it very clear. The whore of Babylon does not have any blue. The whore of Babylon has purple and scarlet, but no blue. That should help you immediately begin to figure out what blue is. We'll get to more of that as we go. I said last week, you might remember that, that it's best to consider blue, purple, scarlet as one word. We'll explore that idea as we move along. I'll attempt to explain why I believe that approach brings the best results. Everyone also may recall the introduction of Judah and Tamar because of the crimson. Um, uh, uh, sorry, thread on the on the child's hand, the one that was uh, thought to be the firstborn, did not turn out that way. Perez. So that uh, has to that will help us with uh, scarlet and crimson. The garments of the high priest. We've been going over that. That brings a lot of clarity to the color blue because the color blue is in, in, tris, intrinsic. I'm sorry, I can barely talk today. Yeah, with regard to the garments of the high priest and the implications. We went over this a little bit of Romans three with respect to the proving the absolute goodness of God. And alongside of those uh, is the omniscience of God as it establishes a singular plan of salvation. And that's where we were. To explain that last part a little differently, let me just say this. God and Christ, same person. God's, Christ's attribute or characteristic of omniscience. So Christ knowing all things, being omniscient God. John 21:17, John 19:28, John 2:24, John 
John 16.30, Christ knows all things. That makes him creator God. Make no mistake. Jesus Christ is the one who searches the minds of all men. Why does he do that? Because he's the judge of all men. Uh, John uh, makes that clear as well. Revelation 2.23 tells us that he searches the minds of all men. So he knows all things and he sees all things. That means that he is omnipresent and omniscient simultaneously, and therefore he has to possess all power to be that way. That's omnipotent. So he is those three omnis. I've said that thousands of times in my so-called career, but it always is important to keep saying it. So I get this objection a lot. They object to Christ being omnipotent. I hear it all the time from the conservative talk show host. For some reason that has infiltrated that uh, that has polluted uh, the talk show world, especially the conservative. Um, I will concede that I uh, am not able to listen to the to the liberal talk show people for very long. Though I do listen to them. I think it's important. But for whatever reason, those who represent the conservative view politically do not believe that Christ is omnipotent. They do not believe that God is omnipotent. They separate Christ and God all the time. That is blasphemy. Let me make that point clear again. But they do not think that Christ is omnipotent. They object to that. So when I, I ask a simple question then. If you think that he is omniscient, and they will concede that, and omnipresent, they just don't think he has the power to confront sin. Sin is more powerful than him. That's what they say. He just can't stop the chaos in the world, so that's why he's allowing it. I know, I know. That's so illogical and so foolish of a thought. I don't know how to describe it, but it is prevailing on talk radio commonly. Let's ask this question about that. How much power is necessary to see the minds of all men? How much power is necessary continue to see and know all things? How much power is necessary to remember? Because to know, knowing incorporates remembrance. So we have to remember all things to know all things. How much power is required to remember all things? He's the rememberer. What's it, what is required to be the one who remembers all things, the rememberer? And since Christ remembers all things, what does this do to the uh, concept of time? Obviously, time is subordinated. Omnipresence, by definition, is authority over time. So that must also be the case with omniscience. Do you follow the logic there? I cannot be omniscient without being omnipresent. Omnipresence subordinates time. It means that I am everywhere at all time. So time has no impact on omnipresence. So therefore it has no impact on omniscience. That's transitive mathematics. Hopefully you understand that. It's okay if you don't. Something we should naturally expect, by the way, of the creator of all things, that he has, uh, he has complete authority over time. Time is a created thing. John 1.3. So far, so good. So with all of that as the foundation, the proposal of universalism is therefore ruined. What does that mean? Universalism as a philosophy or as a doctrine is sent to destruction. What I mean by that is that universalism is defined as salvation by all and any means. 
So when you run into a universalist, he has no concern about his salvation because he believes all are saved by any and all means. Salvation is an eventuality to the universalism, to the universalist, sorry. All humanity will be saved in time. That is the central argument of the universalist, which by logical extension then causes what to happen? If that were true, if all were saved by eventuality, if all are saved by time, essentially, all I have to do is wait for my salvation to occur. Mine may take longer for yours. In other words, God may take some of you sooner than me. But eventually, in time, I will be saved. So my life and accountability has no consequence except for the length of time that I am in a state where I'm awaiting my eventual salvation. Hopefully that all makes sense to you. So what if that were true, by logical extension, that causes salvation through belief in the blood of blood and name of Christ to be rendered meaningless, does it not? <laughs> See what and if I re, I render Christ's blood and name and belief to be meaningless, then I have destroyed his redemptive work, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. Why is any of that necessary if everyone is saved by eventuality? Why should he have gone through that? Just to save a couple of minutes for a few people? The substitutionary sacrifice, the blood atonement, Leviticus 17, which we're studying, the sweet savor, the acceptance of, of the Godhead of the sacrifice of Christ, the aroma of it. Why even do it if all we have to do is wait and everyone will be saved? It makes time obviously very powerful, doesn't it? Because you see, if, if any and all means, irrespective of beliefs and methods concluded in salvation, eventually, and if and salvation is eternal life, right? The only differentiation is time and the, or the amount of time. Hopefully, that makes some sense. It might not. That's okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Salvation through Christ, then, is reduced to equality with every other universalistic method, which is exactly what they teach. If you go to a universalistic church, they will say to you, there are many paths to God. All of them ultimately result in reaching God. Some might be a little quicker, but all are therefore equal outside of the concept of time. It's why it's very important to understand God's authority over time and that he is not inside of time. You can see the power of that argument once you establish it. Salvation to Christ, through Christ, is therefore, as I was saying, reduced to equality eventually with paganism, Scientology, hedonism, secular humanism, whateverism, uh, nothingism. And it's just all that remains of any interest, any concern, may be the duration of one's arrival into eternity, into eternal salvation. And when you start to think about that, the duration is eliminated. Or, if you will, the waiting period is, remember, eliminated. I've eliminated it by saying that that's all there is. 
That may not make sense yet, but let's keep going. In other words, what is the significance of a thousand years of waiting? Take the purgatory position. What is the significance of a thousand years of waiting to, uh, to pick an arbitrary period when that thousand years is measured next to eternity? Let me draw you the eternity line. Okay? Here is eternity. Right? There it is. Here is a thousand years. Okay? Do you see it? If that is eternity, a thousand years can't even be seen. It is so insignificant. It's, it's essentially non-distinguishable from nil or zero. Let's make it 10,000 years. Let's make it a million years. It, you still don't see it. It still doesn't show up. I'm going to make it in red. Okay? You, there's no red there. Don't look at my box around Leviticus 17. There is, if you start to say there's a time duration, but eventually you reach eternity, well, eternity is overwhelming. So there, the time issue is meaningless. So hopefully you recognize the impact of the universalistic precepts that that universalistic precepts have on the truth of Scripture. Because Scripture says, no, there is only one singular way of salvation. Only one. That makes people very angry at me and you when you say that. You are bigoted. I am bigoted if bigoted means that there is only one means of salvation. Because there is. I'm not bigoted towards people. Anyone who wishes to be saved will be saved. All who believe, all who come are saved. It matters. Nothing else matters. Not your supposed human attributes. Okay. The universalists, by the way, know that this issue is the case. They know that universalism is the absolute opposite to salvation through Christ alone, which is why it, in my view, becomes incumbent, imposed on the Christian apologists, that would be you and me, to strike with the omniscience of Christ as a rebuttal. Once you establish the omniscience of Christ, you are attacking time duration. And the uh, universalists have that perfectly understood, to say that again. Let me repeat the statement from last week. The omniscience of Christ, once you establish that Christ is God and he knows all things, and you must do that, that's why it's so important, that's why we get so frustrated, I get so frustrated. Uh, Dana um, brought to me, he, he went to a service earlier this week, I don't know for sure, where the man at the pulpit uh, said that Christ had limitations. Oh, he could tell immediately, Dana could, that I was not in the church service when a man stood up and said that Christ has limitations because I would have screamed blasphemers, stone him, and, and rushed the stage with a chair in my hand. That's what I would do. Christ has no limitations. Omniscience is non, non-limitable. It can't be limited. It's infinity. Infinity is required to be omniscient. So the omniscience of Christ This is a statement from last week. Back to the subject. The omniscience of Christ forces the singularity of salvation through Christ. Does that make sense? I'm saying that a lot today. I hope it does. Phrase it another way. Christ, because he knows and sees all things, 
outside of the constriction of time because he's the creator of time, because he sees all things simultaneously and remembers them simultaneously. That impels, that fact coerces salvation to be only through Christ. The one who is that way is the only method by which you can be saved. Christ alone. The omniscient one must therefore be the exclusive, singular, alone means of salvation. That is how it works. Which is, as you know, is exactly what Christ repeatedly says. He knows he's omniscient. And he knows, therefore, he is the only possible means of salvation because he is the omniscient one. No other one can be that but the omniscient one. And so that's why he says it over and over again. And that's why he forces Peter to say, you are omniscient at the end of John. You know all things. Peter is forced by Christ to say that because of the impact it has on the exclusivity of salvation by Christ alone. And he says it John 14:6, Hebrews 10:19, John 11:25, John 10:9. Always says it. But it's also why he says it. He says it because he alone is the life because as the omniscient creator there is no other possibility. I'll finish this little section um, and you'll hopefully figure out why we're talking about this today when we get to the other sections. Let me put it this way now. It is impossible for salvation to occur except through Jesus Christ. It's impossible. And it is impossible because he's omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. I'll leave you to reason out why it is impossible. Hebrews 5.14 Use your mind to reason these truths out while while I merrily row the boat along some more. In in concert with that aforementioned impossible that I just gave you is the great declaration of Romans 3, 10 through 18, Psalms 14, 1 through 3, Psalms 53, 1 through 3. All of those I'm saying for the Internet audience because they can slow stuff down and speed stuff up, which they do routinely. We have the capability, Supper Dave informs me, to figure out if you're watching on, on tube face all the way through. And we know they're not, don't we, Dave? <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> it's fun to know who's listening all the way through and who's not. It's, it's kind of cool. Some of you are doing a much better job. No, I'm kidding. I Okay. Romans 3, 10 through 18 is a side-by-side with it is impossible for salvation to occur except through Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 10 through 18 is the complement side-by-side, if you will, of that. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. I said, if you remember from last week, that these statements prove that God is pure good. Always good. Only one who is himself perfect good could or would make that statement. Some are going to argue with that. Next week I'll, I'll take on their arguments. They're going to say, well, this is really God admitting that he isn't good either. No. We'll, 
like I said, you'll work that out here while I'm going on with the sermon, but I'll finish it up for you if you're still wondering the logic of that next week. Consider this for a second. God describes and he defines the word none. And he says that none are not good. Not one is good. So he's also defining good. Now, who can prove that none are good? Who can prove it? If I said none of you are good, you would ask to me to prove it. I would have to prove it. God says none are good, no, not one. There isn't any that are not good, and he can prove it. And he's going to prove it, by the way. What is necessary to do this, to prove this? How much information must be known, remembered? Perhaps my favorite way of dealing with the magnitude of none righteous, no, not one, none who does any good, no, not one, is to ask, how big is good? How small is good? Consider the amount of information that's available to God. He knows all information. And obviously, he must know all information simultaneously or immediately without the impact of time. Time has no effect on Jesus Christ. Can't say that enough. Time is subordinate to omniscience. Can't say that enough. If that wasn't true, omniscience would be impossible. I know, I know. This is where you're screaming, make him stop. I used to have a young man that come, and the mom would look at the young man because halfway through the lecture, he would say, Mom, make him stop this. Just stay with me a little bit longer here, and then we'll get out of this section. If information comes into existence over time, then that information that is yet to occur cannot be known. And what have you done to God? have said there's something he doesn't know because time hasn't occurred yet. That can't be true. Obviously, information is not linear. Information is not time-based. It must be immediate. Knowing all things can only be achieved by the person who created time. I skipped a few steps there for the sake of time. Yes, thank you for finishing the joke, Terry. Good. You should be able to fill in the logical pro- progressions, I hope. You'll see, I think, how this all fits maybe next week. Now, back to the color blue, or blue, purple, and scarlet from <coughs> excuse me, Leviticus 17 and uh, Exodus 25 and parts uh, else, Judah and uh, Judah Tamar. From Leviticus 17. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats blood will be executed. That's Leviticus 17. And we went um, back to the blue tassels of number 15, Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22, which then led us to Exodus 25. Exodus 25.4 is the blue, purple, scarlet. And ultimately, we trace the blue, purple, scarlet through Exodus uh, for a while last week, focusing primarily on the garments of the high priest. I hope you remember all of that, because that becomes now a little bit more important. God tasked, well, I shouldn't say that, more important because of us, not because of it. God tasked his nation of Israel with constructing his tabernacle. And he told them to put this blue, purple, scarlet in that tabernacle, and to put it in the priest clothing, and to put it everywhere. He put it in the tassels. He's done this all throughout Israel. He laid out very detailed instructions about how the tabernacle was to be made 
and what it represented. He has a pattern here. And obviously, in his pattern, he's hidden his truths, his mysteries, his plan. So if we study what's going on in the tabernacle, how he designed it, we should be able to figure out, figure out excuse me, what he's thinking. And Israel would naturally, while they're, while they're building this thing, just imagine I come to you with all of these plans and hand them to you and tell you this is what you're building. And they have these intricate colors. They have these designs. There's all of this stuff that goes here and there. You would ask me, why? Why are you building this thing? Well, I have a reason. Well, what is the reason? Well, God has done that on an on a unimaginably large scale. Great is the wisdom here. Israel naturally questioned every aspect of it. The purpose of each component is they manufactured it. Why am I making this component? I used to work for a man, work with a man, taught me a great deal. His name was Kelly Kmybusty. I shouldn't say his name, should I? Now people will look him up. Ah, mistake. You might have to get rid of that for me, Dave. Cross it out. Point of it was is Kelly was a, a mean old German, and he would get his crew together, of which I was supposedly a part of and in charge of, and not really. Um, and he would have Dickie, his friend, cut the same piece a hundred times or a thousand times. He'd sit at a radio arm saw in those days. That's how old I am. And Dickie would cut all of these pieces. Kelly would give him a cut list. And they would be these weird pieces of strange sizes. And there'd be piles of them because we're building a building that was over 50, 60,000 square feet. And there's a pile of pieces. And Dickie had no idea what he was making. Drove him crazy. And he'd ask Kelly every day, what, why this one? Why is this one different from this one? And Kelly would just look at him and say, you will know soon, my little grasshopper. And most of us didn't know. And I had access to the plan so I could see what he was thinking. Well, this is Israel. They're going through this process, all these little pieces. Naturally, they're going to ask, why is this being made this way, out of this material? We should ask the same thing. Everything you read about the tabernacle's construction, you should ask every time, why is it silver? Why is it gold? Why is it blue? Why is it blue, purple, and scarlet? Why is it made out of a badger skin? Why is it acacia board wood? Why is it this dimension? What goes inside of it? How tall is it? Who goes where? Why this order? Everything has a meaning to God. Every single tiny Tiny thing has some great wisdom in it. In the age of the church today, doesn't care. Doesn't care. I know they don't care. They're so dumb. How dumb is the church today? They think Christ has limitations. That's how dumb they are. That is, that is, that is dumb, dumb. So that's just not dumb. That's dumb that is dumb. Keep going with that. Turtles all the way down. The church of this age is willfully disinterested in searching out these hidden wisdoms of God. The mega church of today can't be bothered to set aside their incessant psychological blather to labor in Scripture. I might rant here now. It's not a shock. 
Revelation 3.16 says that the Laodicean church, which I think is the church that we are watching around us, the Laodicean church of the end of the age of the Gentile makes, Gentiles makes God puke. That's what he says. It's all goop. And if you read it, it's, it's, I don't, it's self-aggrandizing. It teaches you to be self-aggrandizing. It teaches you to puff yourself up and to look at yourself and be proud of your destiny. You're a child of a purpose-driven child of some kind of destiny thingy. I don't know what it all is. Uh, be what God desires you to be what God desires you to be or whatever. It's just a bunch of goop. And how big a churches do they have? Well, does it work? Yeah, it works. Absolutely. It's, it's a, a word salad of Christian-sounding terms, and it makes no sort, shortage of suckers. Likewise, no limit of carnival, carnival barkers. Okay, let's go to Exodus 25, 1 through 9. And uh, take a look. Because I have water damage in my house today that the lovely Lori managed to hear. For those of you on the internet wondering where my normal Bible is, I forgot it. I was down in the crawl space crying over my water. Two feet of water down there, which I'll have to fix as soon as I get home. If tomorrow you read Steve Cronister dies of drowning, you'll know what happened. Okay. <laughs> 25, 1 through 9. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that give, every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ramskid dyed red and badger skin and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Okay? Exodus 25:10:22 is next going to follow and it is the pattern of the ark of the testimony whose foremost purpose is to be the location of the Shekinah glory. In other words, the light of life, God himself will be over the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are attached to the mercy seat and that is its foremost purpose and within the ark is the secondary purpose if you wish to add this kind of of rank to it, that is the testimony, are the two stone tablets, Exodus 25:21. So God has made a box that is to be carried by priests, if you, and the purpose of the box is that he will be above it, and inside of it will be the two stone tablets. The ark is, ark is mathematically sized to be the exact receptacle for the two tablets. And we have some more verses now that we need to add, so let's go add those. Ezekiel 126. And those of you who were part of my Ezekiel study, how long ago was that? Fifteen years ago? You will recognize this. 
both of you. Uh, this is uh, where Ezekiel is describing Christ coming in his throne. And as it moves, it's the pillar of cloud, if you will, wish to think of it that way. And above the firmament, verse 26, that was over their heads, that's the cherubim's head, was the likeness of a throne. So whatever this was, over the, in other words, I have the cherubim, and then I have a firmament or an expanse. It's a space. And above the space was the likeness of a throne. So something that looked like a throne. As the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness and the appearance of a man above it, upon it. And I saw the color of amber as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upwards, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw it as it were the appearance of fire, and it had the brightness round about, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of the one that spoke. So, this is Ezekiel seeing the throne of God, Christ there, and the Shekinah glory that is Christ. Think Mount of Transfiguration. He showed you that he was the light of life. He says that he is the light of life, and Ezekiel gets to see that. Okay, That's a description of Jesus Christ inside the pillar of cloud. Again, the firmament is the space above the living creatures. The cherubim was the likeness of a throne. The likeness of a throne that had the appearance of sapphire stone. Sapphire stone is blue. So... That's how we get to blue today. Here is some extraordinary revelation. Sapphire stone is blue. So I have blue beneath the throne of Christ as Ezekiel sees it. It's in the likeness and appearance of that. I'm aware that this is not specific language. I have inferred that this has blue here. It seems that the throne of Christ inside the cloud has this blueness beneath it. And it appears that it is translucent. So we've established that. Now we go back to Exodus. Exodus 24. 24.6 And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant, and he read in, and he read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. That, by the way, is a wedding vow. Everybody, the bride in every wedding, stands in front of the pastor and says, All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Okay, none of the brides ever say that. That's just, never mind. This should, though, alert you that Israel is in a wedding ceremony here. And they are saying that. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant. 
What covenant is he talking about? Which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. What words? Then went up, then they went up Moses, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu went up and the 70 elders of Israel. They're going up the mountain. So they were at the base of the mountain. Now they're going up and they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet as if it were a paved work of sapphire stone. So they are now seeing what Ezekiel saw. Christ is in front of Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees his throne. He sees the stone underneath. He sees the cherubim. He sees the space. He sees the cloud. And here is Moses before Ezekiel seeing the same thing. Christ again. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet as if it were a paved work of sapphire stone, and, and as it were the body of heaven in his cleanness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand also. They saw God and did eat and drink. So it is saying to you in the old King James that they were able to see God and not die. Why didn't they die? And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give you the tables of stone, the tablets of stone, and a law, and, a, and commandments which I have written, that, that you may teach them. And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Wait here for us until we come to you again, and behold, Aaron and her are with you. If any man, that behold is incredible, by the way. I had two, by the ways, in the post game, pregame, Sharon, in case you were wondering. Where was I? And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud uh, covered the mount. Okay, so keeping the description of Christ by Ezekiel at the ready, here we have Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders, and they're climbing the mountain. After Israel, in Exodus 24-3, completed their marriage vows, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Obvious wedding vow language and symbolism. That's what's happening. So now the bride or the representatives of the bride climb the mountain. Moses rises early in the morning. He builds an altar at the base of the mountain. He makes an offering of the Lord or offering to the Lord. He sprinkles half of the blood on the people, the other, of course, on the altar, and saying, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. So far with me. And note that Jesus, Matthew 26, 28, says very much the same thing, doesn't he? At the establishment of communion. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31, 31, which is shed for many. So we see the same symbolism being used by God again. Obviously, Jesus, God, remembered what he said to Israel at Exodus 24, or what he had Moses say to Israel at Exodus 24. So, let's recap it now. Israel says its vows. Moses builds an altar. The people have the blood of the offering upon them. Next, the selected group, Moses, Aaron, 
Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders climb up. They're selected. The selected group climbs up to see the pillar of cloud that has the blue hue to it, has the throne, has the cherubim, has Christ. And Christ does not kill them. They don't die. They eat and drink. So we have wedding vow. Then they climb up and they have a wedding feast. Wedding vow, wedding feast. Marriage vows, marriage feast. After the wedding is the feast. How good is it to be Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70? That's got to be good. Incomprehensibly good. Moses goes further. Him and Joshua, they go within the glory of God in the cloud. Exodus 24:16. Now I could spend months here at Exodus 24, but we're just stopping by here today to pick up the blue stone reference, so that you notice that there's a blueness involved in all of this. The element of the blue stone has been. Uh, tremendously argued over the centuries. Let me ask you again, why didn't they get killed? How could they go into the presence of God and not die? They had what? They had blood on top of them, that's right. So why are you sprinkling blood on them? Why he makes the offering? <clears throat> this blue stone, that's... As I said, it's been argued for centuries now. Mostly it has been established, or no, that's a bad word. It's been accepted by the Jewish commentaries. They've seized upon what would be this idea. They think that because there's a sapphire stone, something like a sapphire stone, and that sapphire stone is... Blue, they look at Exodus 24.10, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet as if it was were a paved stone of sapphire stone. They, that's what they do with it. And when down in 12, and the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me in the mountain there, and I will give the, you tablets of stone and a law. They assume that the stone in 12 and the stone in 10 are the same stone. So they assume... Um, they have decided over the centuries that the two tablets are blue, made out of sapphire stone from that, that material beneath the throne of Christ inside the pillar of cloud. I hope I described it as well as I could. The sapphire stone of Exodus 24.10 is the stone of Exodus 24.12 upon which God wrote. Thus, the first tablets were blue, they conclude. And therefore, they say, the blue tassels that are on the fringe, or the fringe tassels, uh, at Numbers 15, is a symbol of the two stone tablets. That's why the tablets, or the tassels, are blue. So, with me so far? I hope so. Now, that may seem like a pretty strong case. And they believe it is... Uh, Established, they believe that they have uh, they have prevailed, but 
Maybe, maybe not. What happened to the first stone tablets? They were smashed. Exodus 32.12. Broken by Moses. So they obviously uh, are now in pieces. That raises some questions. Is the material inside the throne room, the pillar of cloud, the movable throne room for, you know, he's got this throne on the move, right? That it is powered by his cherubim and they may, they have all these wings and they're pretty loud guys. And so is that stone underneath the, the throne of Christ, is that made of breakable materials? Can I break it? And some of you were going, oh, it doesn't seem likely that uh, if he handed me a couple of the pieces of that throne room and he says, here, here's it, and I could smash them together, does that seem logical to you? Moses is a fallen man, apparently, uh, with the strength to destroy the, the stone that is at the base of the throne of Christ. Is that going to be your position? That is the prevailing view in the commentaries of the Jews. Bless their hearts. Is your position going to be that when Christ hands the tablets to Moses, there's fragile stickers on them? Don't break these things. Be careful. That might be a little tough. Let's keep going. God being outside of time, omniscient God. This is not, did I, hopefully I established that. He would know something, wouldn't he? He would know that the first tablets that Moses has given would be broken by Moses. He knew the first set of stone tablets would be smashed. So, did he, is that why he made them out of blue glass? So that they could be broken. Actually, many have so proposed, and let's see if that holds up. What is God doing here? Why did he write his law on something that Moses could break? What does the breaking of the tablet symbolize? How good a job did Moses do? By that I mean count the pieces. I got how big are they? We're going to establish that in a couple of weeks. We're going to know exactly how big they are. They were smashed. How many pieces? Did he, did he sledgehammer them? What did he break them on? How Again, how many pieces do I have? By that, I even mean this. Could Moses glue them back together? Were they destroyed? Or could they be recovered? Okay. There were two tablets smashed into hundreds of pieces. Let's go ahead and say that. Either very small pieces of blue glass or very small rocks. Blue rocks, if you will. Maybe not blue. If so, we have to figure out where they came from. We are going to end up on stone typology or symbolism. You figured that out by now, I suspect. Christ is called the Rock of Israel, 2 Samuel 23.3. Those are the last words of David. He calls Christ the Rock of Israel. So if Christ is the rock of Israel, can he be broken into pieces? Christ is 
the spiritual rock of living water, 1 Corinthians 10.4. Christ is the rock of perfect work, Deuteronomy 32.4. That's the song of Moses. The precious cornerstone, Isaiah 28.16. The chief cornerstone, 1 Peter 2.6. The stone that smotes, that kills the image, Daniel 2.35. Jesus Christ is indisputably portrayed as the rock or the stone. It is a symbol of him. Is he then being symbolized also, therefore, by the smashing of the stone tablets? Once you start this journey, this trek, it becomes difficult to find a place to stop. We know, for example, that Moses is the definitive type of Christ in Scripture. He portrays Christ magnificently all throughout his entire life. Deuteronomy 18:15. Moses breaks the two tablets, powderizes the gold calf, makes Israel drink it. 3,000 are slain. And he describes those 3,000 as 3,000 that are set on evil. And so what we've just done is is begun the tablet questions. Why are there two tablets? Why? Why not three tablets? Why are there ten commandments? Why not twelve tablets? commandments. Why aren't there four tablets? Seven tablets. Wouldn't you have thought three tablets would be good? Try you and God? I have broken tablets and then I have replacement tablets. I could do it this way, couldn't I? I have old tablets and now what have I got? I got new tablets. I'll say it fast. Old tablets and new tablets. First tablets and second tablets? Which tablets are in the Ark of the Covenant? The second tablets. Did God know that the second tablets would be in the Ark of the Covenant and not the first tablets? Of course he did. He's omniscient God. Duh. What happened to the first tablets? How many pieces I got? Did Moses, after he killed 3,000 people and took care of all those, the golden calf and all that stuff, did he get down on his hands and knees and pick up all the pieces? What if he missed a piece? The, the mystical Jewish writings try to solve this. They know that, okay, we've got to solve this. This isn't something we can just go with. We, somebody might ask some questions someday. So they say that Moses did, in fact, gather the pieces up. He reused them. He reformed them. Keep in mind, these Jewish commentaries are something. They are Christ-less. They have no idea who Christ is. They didn't know it was Christ up there on that mountain, the physical manifestation of the invisible God. Or if you wish, you could say it this way, the physical manifestation of the infinite God. Infinity would be invisible by definition. So he is the he is the physical manifestation of infinity. So the the Jews, those commentaries of theirs, their ancient traditional systems, do not have Christ anywhere near them. So would they be able to figure this out without Christ being the center of it? If it's not Christ centric, it is not going to be true. So keep that in mind. So when they say that Moses picked the pieces up and reused them, does that, does that, excuse me, fit a Christ-centric 
view. Have you decided, is Christ typified by the tablets that are smashed to pieces? Is that, many people think Christ is the blue, they will tell you, he is the blue tablets. Is he the blue tablets? Is, are the tablet, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Tablets clearly is Christ. It goes through Israel, it is hidden. Uh, inside of it is the tablets. So the tablets are inside Christ. Are the tablets also Christ? That becomes the discussion we'll have to find out, huh? So keep all of that in mind. How likely is it that the Jewish uh, writings have it right when they are Christless? I don't think it's right at all. Okay, we're running out of time. I know everyone loves to hear that. We really do need to read Exodus 34, 1 through 4, and Deuteronomy uh, 1 through 5, 10, 1 through 5. So let's do that really fast, and then we'll shut her down here because of the time constraints. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first. And I will write upon these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which thou broke. And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me at the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you. Neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount. Notice the difference. Let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount. He likes flocks and herds. Seems like he likes them more than people. That's not true, but understand that he loves his animals. And he, Moses, hewed, made the two tablets of stone like the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up under the Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Why do I read that? What information did you just learn there? Moses made the tablets. Did Moses write on the tablets? What did Moses make them out of? He's not in the throne room of Christ this time. Now, the Jewish traditional mystics, uh, they have an answer. They said that God hid uh, sapphire stone in his tent and Moses found it he dug it up and made and of course he used some of the pieces and it ends up being a cube never mind I gave you the shortened version we'll get over that later that's the Christless view is it correct what are the chances the Christless view the Christless position is correct ever ever it's never correct. Deuteronomy 10, 1 through 5. At that time the Lord said unto me, Moses, Make two tablets of stone like unto the first, and come up to, unto me into the mount, and make, you, make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets of words. I'm sorry, I will write on the tablets the words that were in the first tablets, which thou broke, and, and you shall put them in the ark. Okay, so we learned again. Moses made the tablets. Who wrote on them the second time? God wrote on them the second time. But Moses made them. Moses carried them. So that becomes the question. Are the tablets blue? I 
Obviously, God saw fit to make a second set, which makes me consider the condition of the first set. Also, why is the first set destroyed? What does that mean? Moses cut the two tablets, like the first, from the bottom of the mountain this time. He came up by himself this time. There wasn't any people down there sprinkled with blood this second time, but there were animals down there that got to eat. They were eating. I had eating uh, by people the first time. I got animals doing it the second time. Did God provide sapphire stone the second time? Was it a different material the second time? Do you see the issue that develops? If this is a different stone the second time from the first stone, and the first stone, if it's your position, is from the throne room of God, from heaven, and the second stone is a different stone because it's down from the mountain, at the base of the mountain, not the original stone. See your problems? If the second stone is not the same stone, what are we doing? If the stone matters. Next week, see if we can solve blue. Might be a while.